Hey everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rearcrow. And today we have a really exciting episode planned for you. We're going to be talking all about Spike Lee's new release to Five Bloods and some of his filmography. I cannot wait to talk about this movie with you. Yeah, we haven't really talked about it much, which is nice. I know we usually share opinions about things as we watch them. So I've tried to hold back a lot of how I feel. After my first watch, I was like buzzing a little bit (laughs) and wanting to tell you things. Me too. No, it was great having that feeling again, finally, of watching Mm -hmm. a movie. And I wanted to text you as I was watching it. And I was like, no, it'll be better if we wait to talk about. (laughs) Um, But it was great kind of getting that, like I said, getting that feeling again of seeing a new film by a great director. We haven't had that yet. Yeah, a potential awards film, which, I mean, we talked about it before, how we get that summer release. And we're, I think we're both hoping this is one of them for sure. So before we dive into this movie and what we love about it let's talk about the never-ending changes to the oscars that are coming (laughs) yeah we updated you guys last week and i think maybe the day after we already had changes we were like oh gosh we should do another (laughs) like daily just uh everything going on so yeah we've had a ton of changes the first change that we got last week was that the Academy is going to be establishing representation and inclusion standards for Oscars eligibility, and these will be established through a phased initiative called Academy Aperture 2025. What do you think about this change first? I mean, we all know it's necessary. The hashtag Oscars so white has been a thing for such a long time. So I think it's great that they're approaching the problem and hopefully going to change it. We don't know too much about this yet. So we'll see what actually happens. I know that they were going to push this later in the month, but then all of the events happening recently with George Floyd and the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement, they kind of just pushed everything up. So I was happy to hear about it. Yeah, I'm really hopeful. We don't obviously have a ton of information yet, but I think that this is a step in the right direction. And I'm hoping that we can get a more diverse voting body that can reflect how the industry is changing and Mm -hmm. celebrate films in new ways. We won't just get a bunch of the same anymore, which I think is good. I read a little bit about it, and part of it has to do with certain members only holding a position for so long, and they're going to kind of phase out people that have already been in there for way too long. So I think that's a really good step in the right direction for transitioning the academy and making sure there's always not necessarily more youthful but more diverse for sure and our next change that we have that will hopefully celebrate a more diverse array of films is that we will be moving to a solid static 10 best picture nominees not this coming oscars but the following oscars so the 94th 93rd won't be affected we'll talk about those changes in a minute but The Best Picture category from 2009 to 2011 was set at 10. And then after that, we had this fluctuating number where we would often have anywhere from 8 to 10 nominees. So I think overall 10 can be a good thing, but I really think it depends on the year. What do you think? I guess I never thought about it in these terms because I I like that there were more than five. But 10 does seem like a big number compared to the five that have been 
the most of the history of the Oscars. But looking back on it now, it's like, who decides and what decides having nine pictures versus seven or six or ten? And that's where it kind of gets sticky in terms of inclusion and diversity. And if something's left out, people have this scapegoat for voicing their complaints and the diversity issue with the Academy itself. So I think establishing 10 will allow more pictures to be included, which is great. I know over the past few years, I've definitely wanted other pictures to be included. And I really hope they take advantage of this in in the right way. I know there is a weird science behind it that everyone gets to vote for best picture. Like they all submit a list, I think, of five films that they can nominate. And then you have to receive a certain number of first place votes to be nominated for best picture. But I don't know what that threshold is. I guess now that we have 10, it won't matter anymore. But I think it is odd that next year is the year they're starting this because this year feels like a good year to start this because... We'll talk about the window that we have for eligibility, but nothing is shooting right now for next year. So I feel like we're going to have even less to choose from, especially with COVID being so unpredictable. I feel like this year would have been a good year to recognize a solid 10 from different genres or some smaller films maybe. But yeah, next year seems like an odd choice. Right, because we've had some productions that have stalled but i think a lot of pictures are in post-production right now and i think by the end of the year those are going to be finished so i think we're actually going to have a bigger lull in movies next year as things kind of pick up or we're going to have a, a lot of scenarios where filmmakers aren't happy but they're rushed for completion So next year's, I think, going to be a lot more interesting than this year. But I agree, we're still going to have way more than 10 to choose from for Best Picture. And like we talked on our last pod, I think there are so many that have potential. So let's talk about the new eligibility window and the big news that we finally got. The 93rd Oscars have been pushed to April 25th. So we're going to have a spring Oscars this year, tourist season, (laughs) and the eligibility window because of that has been extended. So now films that have been released from January 1st, 2020, all the way until February 28th, 2021 will be eligible. And for those who don't know, the previous eligibility, I think for every single year up until now, is that films from January 1st to December 31st of that year with the seven-day run in L.A. County, which has already changed. But those dates will count for that next year's Oscars. So this newer window is huge, extended by two entire months, which is, I think, going to change everything. I like that the ceremony has moved. I think that it's not a big deal that it's in April. I feel like it's going to be fun having it with warmer weather maybe here. And I don't know. I think it's good to... I mean, why rush it to potentially have some Zoom ceremony? I feel like it's fine if we postpone it. That happened in previous decades. We can have it again. People will be fine. I do think it's funny, though, coming off of one of the shortest, most rushed award seasons that now we're going to have a really long one. It's We're going to be talking about this for so long. 
I mean, it's almost a year away. And then fast forwarding another year, are we going to have another really short year? Because since the eligibility is the end of February, so essentially March 1st through December, that's a crazy small window because they already made the date for the 94th Oscars in 2022 last year when they announced the following two years, if that makes any sense. So this is just a huge roller coaster. (laughs) I think, too, another thing that's really interesting is now will Sundance be the last minute push for these 93rd Oscars right could Sundance right be that last place where those best picture nominees could go I mean they'll be fresh in the minds of voters could Sundance come back to its old glory yeah I mean this could be the first year where we have two full Sundance festivals included in one year's Oscars that's kind of kind of cool I think so too. Because we already, we've talked about Minari and that won two awards at Sundance. I know. It's like now I feel kind of badly for the movies that did come out earlier, like in the first half of this year that kind of squeaked in. Will they just be totally forgotten? I mean, we'll see. They'll probably get re-released. Yeah, I think a lot of them will. I know, I mean, First Cow is the one that comes to mind in that it had a short release pretty much as COVID was starting in March, I believe. And then it was taken out of theaters and going to be re-released later in the fall. So one of the, I'm sure, many scenarios that COVID has affected. Well, I'm glad that we have a date. I'm glad that they moved it and weren't quite as stubborn as Christopher Nolan has been with Tenet. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good transition, though, into some of the new release dates that we have. So probably the biggest surprise, because I know Christopher Nolan is like a big proponent of having his movie released on the 17th. And the headline this week was Tiny Delay. And I was like, oh my gosh, but it's (laughs) only two weeks. We're getting at the end of July. The other big one was No Time to Die. It's actually moving up. So before it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And now it's just the Friday prior, which honestly might be better for them. I think that's when big Thanksgiving releases are done anyway. Yeah, the first thing I thought when I saw that Tenet was being pushed back two weeks is what does Christopher Nolan think he's going to change in two weeks or (laughs) what kind of time travel manipulation thing does he know about next that can move us past this? But I think it's going to get moved again. (laughs) Yeah, two weeks really isn't doing much. I mean... I mean, there's, there's no way... New York opens by the end of July. But even cities who are in phase two or close to three, where theaters are open, we've discussed this before, it's not like he's going to release Tenet in X amount of cities only. I mean, I will be flying there if that's the case. (laughs) But I don't think that's likely. It's so tempting. But I just, again, I think this is just a poor business decision. That's really all I can say about it. It could just be another marketing ploy where it's keeping it in the news. You know, even though it's delayed and delayed again, people are waiting and they're ready. Yeah. So now let's talk about a movie that we actually have. Let's move on to The Five Bloods. Very excited to talk about this with you. Like I said, what were your first impressions before we get into what happens, what it's about, all that? Oh, boy. I really liked it. I, I love that it was this mix of genres that 
Spike has approached in the past and he kind of melded everything together, but it also feels kind of different. What'd you think? So I really liked it. I thought it was a great Spike movie, whether or not I would put it in the same tier as Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. We can talk about that later, but I thought that it was very clever, very timely as all of Spike's movies are, but this one felt even more so, I think, because of the hot moment that we're living in right now. And I really like that he incorporated a lot of his trademark filmmaking techniques. He incorporates a lot Mm -hmm. of historical footage. He includes his famous dolly shot again, those nice monologues that we have. So I was happy to see all of that, but also I was happy to be surprised with some of the turns that it took. It went places where I didn't think it was going. I guess I wasn't really sure what was going to happen initially. This group of black veterans goes back to Vietnam to find some gold. And that's like kind of all I knew. It's it's interesting. I don't know if you want to get into this now, but in comparing it to the Irishman. I'm ready to do that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this was kind of like his older generation take on what Scorsese did, which is kind of what I didn't relate to with the Irishman. It, that was like a harder picture for me. I mean, this was longer, too. That's not really my point. But this group and then also flashing back and then how Spike didn't use any CGI. And Scorsese spent, I think, a lot of money on the flashback scene. So Tons of money on them. (laughs) I think that's a unique choice, too, in showing only Chadwick Boseman as their leader, as a young GI. And it's this group of older soldiers coming back and i think norm who's the leader i guess i should say his name they kind of have this memory of him and that's all he is to them even though it's probably a financial decision it also makes sense in terms of the movie yeah we can talk about the de-aging now so for our listeners if you haven't seen it yet there are flashback scenes that are incorporated They're very easy to catch. Spike uses different aspect ratios for them. So you do know when you have a flashback versus when you have present day. But I love that that so much. I thought it was really cool. It makes it easy for you as a viewer. But when you're in these flashbacks, the four veterans that you're spending your time with throughout the film, Paul, Eddie, Otis, Melvin, they, the actors are old men. They, mm-hmm. they don't have de-aging technology. So it takes you a minute to kind of be like, wait, they're old here, right? I was confused at first because I saw it and I was like, wait, this is the past. But they were still old. And then I like, you know, eventually put it together and it made sense. And like the Irishman, I like how you started at the beginning with this. This is a movie about old people. Like you're very much choosing to spend your time hanging out with these old men and I thought they were a great hang. I'll get into that a little bit later, but <laughs> I think there are two sides of the de-aging conversation and why that didn't happen. I think the first is that, unfortunately, for Spike Lee, Netflix did not give him the funding that Scorsese got for The Irishman. And I love The Irishman. I wasn't the biggest fan of the de-aging. I thought it kind of took me out of it a little bit. But I will say that the other side of the coin, I think, is that when you're thinking about black veterans and everything that they've done for our country and the fact that they haven't been treated fairly or justly and that when you're a veteran, all of these experiences are with you forever. That's your truth. 
whether you have intense PTSD like Paul does, and we can get into that, or if you've adjusted in a different way, those experiences are always present for you. So if you're old, you'll be old when you're having those flashbacks. It, it was kind of cool to think of it that way too. So I think you can look at it both ways. The surface level one of just budget totally works. And then if you do want to think about it in the theoretical way, that's what I took from it too. And even budget wise, just very quickly, the, the Irishman was like 150, 160 million. And this was 35 to 45. There wasn't an exact number, but that was still one of Spike's largest movies. So it's impressive. And it's still a quarter of the budget of the Irishman oh my God. by the same company. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. crazy. And Spike took this to several other production companies and studios and everyone said no until he got to Netflix, which is a narrative wow. we hear often from different directors who end up going to Netflix. We heard from Scorsese that no one would take the Irishman. We heard from Noah Baumbach at New York Film Festival that Netflix is the place for directors to make their movies unapologetically. So it's interesting that they've kind of taken on this idea as a brand and as a production company, and Spike just made another great movie for them. So speaking of Netflix, how did you feel about watching it at home? It was better than I expected. I definitely would have, if we weren't in the pandemic right now, would have gone to a theater opening night to see this. And I think it would have mm-hmm. been a great experience. I tried to make my at-home viewing experience as theatrical as possible. I put the Tenant and No Time to Die trailers on beforehand. <laughs> made popcorn, put my phone away with one exception when I texted you about Delroy Lindo. <laughs> But I enjoyed it. I I thought it was good. It was a good watch at home. I was surprisingly engaged the whole time. Maybe I don't give myself enough credit for that. But what I really enjoyed was being able to return to it, to not only prep for this conversation with you, but to look back at some key scenes that I really liked that I wanted to watch again or some monologues that I wanted to listen to again. I thought that that was a really, really nice addition to my viewing experience. And I could do that right away. I didn't have to wait several months or pay to go back to the theater to do that. What about you? Right. There are times where I really want to find a quote and this made it really easy. I don't think I stopped it the first time. I took some notes, but I could go back, like you said, and find those easily. Even just some of the dialogue, I really liked a lot of Delroy's lines and then Hanoi Hannah, who is the Vietnam propagandist. Like I loved what she said. And I feel the same way as you. I tried to distance myself from my phone and just sat on the couch. And I was honestly very attuned to the screen. Like I wasn't distracted easily, even by the two and a half hour runtime. It didn't really feel slow to me like some others have. Like to me, Miracle at St. Anna is okay, but it drags a lot. And I think this was kind of his more mature response and more in-depth response to that, of what he started to talk about, of having his anti-war stance and the black GIs fighting for a country that didn't really care about them. Um, I loved the quote from Hanoi Hanna, who said, Negroes are only 11% of the U.S. population, but among troops here in Vietnam, you are 32%. So they're trying to taunt the soldiers, but I think that's really interesting if those percentages are true. And that kind of echoes what Muhammad Ali said in the beginning, which I love his like documentary footage he adds. 
We can talk about the documentary footage now. I love how he incorporates historical footage and he starts right off the bat with Muhammad Ali and taking you through key figures and historical events from the 60s and 70s so you can get a really good idea of where we're going, whether or not you know about these events or not. I think it's really helpful to gauge his perspective, of course, on these events, but also it really lays out the story nicely. So we have Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, the moon landing, Kwame Ture, Angela Davis, the Kent State Massacre. In there, he says murdered by the Ohio National Guard. So this isn't He's putting his stamp on everything, all of these key details, speeches, and events. I loved, loved, loved how he called Trump President Fake Bone Spurs. That was so good. Yeah. And then how he cut with, once we find out that Paul is a Republican, his friends are like, no way you voted for him. And then was it Melvin who says, oh, that was you in the crowd, wasn't it? And it cuts to a scene where Trump's having a rally and looks back and there's a guy holding up a Blacks for Trump sign. I think here Spike references a lot of other movies that I noticed more than in his other films. I think the big one we get right away is in the nightclub that they go to in Ho Chi Minh, Apocalypse Now behind the DJ set, which was weird to me. What did you think of that? It was weird to me too, but... Apparently, it's an actual nightclub called Apocalypse Now. Oh, wow. Isn't that bizarre? Seems problematic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was really surprised because at first when I saw it, I just thought, that's like a little too on the nose. Even for Spike, we know he Mm -hmm. actually teaches film classes at NYU. So I love the idea of him just kind of dropping these little nuggets in and we're just his students trying to figure everything out. I really love that. But That one was just so in your face that I was actually surprised by it, but no, it's an actual place, which, and I love that scene too. I'll talk about that more again a little later, but I think it's a great start to it. So I was also really glad that I watched Apocalypse Now before I watched The Five Bloods. I had seen bits and pieces of it in film studies classes, but it wasn't one that I had spent a ton of time on, and I'm glad I just, thank you HBO Max for having it on there so I could watch it before this, but... One of the references that is really big is that we hear Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, and this is a majestic, sweeping piece of music that you've definitely heard before, but in De Five Bloods, it's used when they are on their boat ride, and it's just kind of setting up their journey, whereas in Apocalypse Now, it's a really intense moment. That famous helicopter attack sequence, and I love the juxtaposition here of how Spike is kind of winking at us there and saying you think you know how i'm using this but it's it's a little different yeah and there's there's a lot of irony he plays with here in defy bloods part of that boat scene is the son david trying to get these air jordans i think that are roped on a wire and while they're passing he misses them and everybody kind of laughs at him we get some irony later i'll mention in relation to bridge on the river kwai which is towards the end of the movie but another apocalypse now moment i noticed is the ratio transitions to one to one and you get that nice sun photo with the uh, helicopter coming to the foreground and i know that's like very quintessential apocalypse now too Definitely. So another film that I watched leading up to this that I saw some similarities to was John Huston's Treasure of the Sierra Madre. To me, the most obvious similarity to that film is the famous quote 
So in Treasure of the Sierra Madre, we have the quote, badges. We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. And that is referenced into Five Bloods. We hear that from a character. And then another reference that I think I caught is that Paul, Del Rolindo's character, felt a lot to me like Humphrey Bogart's Fred C. Dobbs near the end of the film. I think their paranoia and descent into madness is very similar. And that came to mind for me. I'm sure there are plenty of other film references in it. I definitely will need to watch it again to catch all of them. Maybe read up on some articles too. But those were the ones that I was most confident in right away where I thought, Spike is definitely referencing this film, this character, this moment, this component. And I really liked that. It kept me engaged also while I was watching it. Having a director drop those little nuggets in that you can follow throughout makes the viewing experience that much better. Another thing, so I mentioned Ride of the Valkyries. The music in this movie is great. I loved it. So the score I think is really good. Terrence Blanchard is on this film as well. He's a longtime collaborator of Spike Lee. But also it has just amazing Marvin Gaye songs throughout. And I I loved that. Everything fit too. I mean, the whole vibe of the movie, everything flowed so perfectly. My favorite, I mean, it's Marvin Gaye's biggest song, I think, What's Going On. And it's when Paul is walking through this little river. And I don't think I had heard this version. It's almost like an acoustic version. And it was just so beautiful and you it kind of ties into the the story, but also to Paul. I mean, it just shines this eerie light on everything that's happening. Marvin says, there's far too many of you dying. War is not the answer for only love can conquer hate. And I think Spike has been so anti-war in a lot of his movies. And he does that so well with images and not words all the time. So I like that he incorporated really music was his biggest form of that in this movie. So if you do want to check out the music, I recommend, of course, watching the film first. But after you watch it, Spike Lee did release a playlist on Spotify that has all the songs that are in the film plus the score. That way you can keep listening to the songs and think about the film in new ways as you're processing them again. So if you today could give this movie one Oscar, what Oscar would it win? I mean, I had chills when... Really, whenever Delroy was acting, and especially in his close-ups, I was—I had goosebumps. So, like that to me was an instantaneous. He needs to win this. And then earlier, I know I mentioned picture director could be supplementary original screenplay, maybe music even. That's probably third tier. I kind of alluded to this earlier, but the one time I picked up my phone during the movie was just to text you. Holy Delroy Lindo. I just, every (laughs) single time he was on screen, I just, I couldn't look away. I was blown away. I think it's an extraordinary performance. I think it's Shakespearean. I just, it's, it's what's really hard about being into the Oscars is that every single year without fail, and it's even more horrible that this is happening in June and not in November, but every year there is one performance where I just think, This is the best thing I'm going to see all year. And then the Academy hands over an Oscar to someone who is completely mediocre and forgettable. And I spend months just stumping for this person saying, they need an Oscar. They need an Oscar. They need this Oscar. And then, so I'm hoping this year they get this one right. And 
I think it comes down to categories maybe and what else we get, but I can't at this point imagine seeing a performance better than this one. Yeah, I know with the actual ceremony, it comes down a lot to how they market themselves and their campaign. So I think if they play this one right, they could really amp things back up for Defy Bloods in the fall into the winter. We can only hope. I really hope Delroy does it. When I first saw it, I mean, he's definitely in the lead. He has like the most character development and he probably speaks the most. I mean, it's pretty even across the board. He just has like a little edge. So, I mean, I guess he should be lead. Do you feel like that would be fraud? I think that it would be category fraud. So, you know, the rule follower in me says he should be lead. He has a lot to chew on. He has some intense monologues. And I got the most from his performance. But I also think if we're thinking about traditionally how supporting is defined... I think that David, his son, who is played by Jonathan Majors, who also has a great performance, is kind of the supporting character to his lead character through their relationship. So I think that that is the primary reason also why I see him in the lead category. But I'm telling you now, I will not be surprised if he's run a supporting. I think there's definitely a case where they say this is an ensemble film. There isn't one true lead. It is multiple supporting performances. I could see that. I also don't think we have anyone else in the film who could be pushed as lead. So they might put him there because he doesn't have any intra-film competition, which is oftentimes when they will do category fraud, like if we're thinking the favorite. I could see either, but I think it should be lead. I saw in an article that thought Bozeman should be supporting, which his screen time is so limited. I don't know about that. I think David should get a nom over Norm if that were the case. But I still think both of them don't have a high chance of that happening. I agree. I think that with the release date and with how the Academy typically often recognize white actors, Spike Lee movies, unfortunately, in previous films, we have Danny Aiello getting nominated. We have Adam Driver. The only black nomination, I think, to come from a Spike Lee movie is Denzel for Malcolm X. So they will put all of their backing on Del Lindo. I think that Jonathan Majors, to me, had the second strongest performance as David, but I think Chadwick Boseman mm-hmm. did really well, too. What's interesting is he's always kind of this heroic character, right? Of course, he's T'Challa in Black Panther. And then he's Norm, who's kind of this hero of their past who is gone now. So he's always coming to them as a ghost or in flashbacks. That would definitely be in the supporting category. But I don't find a nomination for him likely. I think we can both agree to round out our after talk that Paul Walter Hauser, a.k.a. Richard Jewell, <laughs> will not be getting in, at least, I hope. No, there's, there's no way. I mean, I think he's better in Black Klansman even than in this one. He just It's funny how, I mean, he obviously doesn't, but Spike has a thing for certain white actors in his mm-hmm. films. Paul Walter Hauser... Here and in Black Klansman, who is like this, I feel like just this dumb guy who he's there, but he's not doing much. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really surprised to Jasper Pakanen. Yep, yep. He's also in it and he's... He's definitely the villain in both movies. I was so surprised though in this when he started, he had a French accent. It really threw me off because <laughs> I saw him and I just thought, oh no, he's back. This is a problem. <laughs> 
<laughs> but he's French. Which is kind of another nod to Apocalypse Now, actually, having the French characters. I'll process that at another time. <laughs> so I don't know what other Oscar potential this has. I think that I'm not sure how it'll play to voters like Black Klansman. Black Klansman seems... I personally prefer this film to Black Klansman, but I think that Black Klansman's a little bit easier to digest than this one. This one has a lot more going on. I think they might struggle with the different narratives, as we know they did with Little Women. And I'm a little worried about that. I think it might be. It's firing on all cylinders, which I really love, but I think to voters, I'm not quite sure how that will pan out. Yeah, like too chaotic maybe. Mm-hmm. I feel like Black Klansman is more mainstream in a sense than this one. I mean, war picks do really well too, so it's not exactly niche. But yeah, I'm not really sure. It's hard to tell. Well, I'm. I'll be rooting for it. I hope that it does well. I hope that Spike gets a second Best Director nomination and this gets a Best Picture nom. So, a quick spoiler section. We're just gonna go into things we've referenced already, saying we're gonna talk about it later. Now is that time. So if you don't want to hear anything, if you haven't seen it, skip ahead. We'll have the timestamp in the pod description. Let's get into some spoilers. Okay. Let's spoil this thing. <laughs> so we will just go through some of our favorite scenes. These won't be in chronological order, but we will include some key details that might help you fill in backstory. But also we're assuming that if you're in the spoiler section, you've also seen the film already. So we might not be filling in all of that additional information. So my favorite scene of all is that very intense moment where David steps on the landmine and you hear that click and you just know we have an issue. <laughs> we also know this because minutes before. Yeah, not even. It was so the transition went from them finding the gold on the hillside where the score is like uplifting it's this bravado and i was like thinking back to hetty and david's conversation about lamb these landmines i was like obviously coming into play so this like happy music i thought he was using that metal detector and gonna find a mine and like someone was gonna die so i was Mm -hmm. ready from then but then it keeps going nothing happens makes me more nervous and then we get into eddie backing up and i was like okay yeah that's gonna happen And then he blows to pieces. All of his limbs are (laughs) blown off. Wild. So gruesome. If you were squeamish, I really wanted to look away (laughs) at that moment. I mean, even in the very beginning with the one documentary footage of uh, Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnam, I don't know, somebody in Vietnam shoots somebody else in the head and it's like blood gushing out. And that, I gasped at that moment. That was... So horrifying. Spike was kind of warning us. So we get this scene. So Eddie's dead. And then like probably not even 30 seconds later, you hear this click. So it's like a huge rush of everything happening. I felt the same exact way as you. I mean, your heart is in it. And you just know too. You're like, how is he going to get out of this? You really cannot fathom a way that he's going to be able to do this. But David's father, Paul, who... We know they have a pretty fraught relationship. They are not a close father-son duo. In fact, David, he has taken a very different path in his life. He, at one point, Paul kind of picks at him and teases him for being a black studies teacher. And he is wearing a Morehouse shirt. And in this moment, 
all of that tension between them, it goes right away. And Paul goes into this mode where he is like, I'm going to solve this problem and you're going to do it with me. And I thought it was just really profound when he says, where did you go to school? The house. Referencing Morehouse, of course. Who went to the house? He references Edwin Moses, who is this Olympian who won gold in the hurdles. And he says, what did Moses do? He could fly. And then he devises this plan of how he's going to wrap this rope around him twice. And everyone's going to pull David from the landmine and he can fly. And it is just an elite father-son scene. And you feel this tension. And then you feel, of course, this intense relief when it's all over. And it's this really beautiful moment between a father and son. And oh yeah, I found it completely moving. And just an expert release of tension, creation and release of tension by Spike. Exactly. Because then once David flies, Paul catches him and is crying as they're hugging in this very emotional moment. And I teared up a few times throughout the movie, actually. (laughs) My other favorite moment, Delroy's close-ups, especially when he's alone towards the end, he's devolving into like, we don't really know what, but he's facing the camera and he kind of knows like this is his end. He loses the gold bag to Norm, he calls it. And that's, and then things just go more and more wrong for him. But he's kind of given up and atoned for everything he's done. He has a scene with Norm where he apologizes and we finally understand what happened. We see the flashback that he accidentally shot Norm. And it's just this grand ending to their relationship and also to Paul's life. Yeah, this scene made me cry. I found it just very cathartic. And I think based on what we knew about Paul leading up to this moment and his relationship with Norm, I knew there was something else, right? I suspected that something else had happened. But then when we see it, and then we have that moment of forgiveness and peace, years later it's just even though you know that Paul is probably going to die just knowing that he has this little moment before that is just beautiful I loved it yeah him and Otis are talking in the very beginning before their journey and Otis goes oh you blame yourself for it and Paul goes you don't even know so at that point we we do know something else is up it just takes an hour and a half to get there. But yeah, I like I like what he did. Do you have any other scenes that you liked? Another scene that I really love, just rewinding a little bit, is near the beginning. So when they are at the Apocalypse Now bar club and we see the four of them walking, kind of dancing together to Marvin Gaye, I really believed in and bought into their rapport. And I think that that's so important when you're going to be spending so much time with a bunch of characters I loved how it began. It it was very light. You know, they're in the hotel, then they go to the, the nightclub and they're all dancing. And then we learn about Paul being a Republican. So I love how it's this dynamic between a brotherhood, but also there's camaraderie between them. And just from their past being soldiers and everything they went through together. And the very beginning in the hotel actually reminded me of Girls Trip. <laughs> when they're all oh meeting gosh, and right. then they go on this journey and... It's just very light like that. And then how it completely transitions is fun too. It's It keeps you on your toes. Yeah. And you see them. You're so right. It's like Girls Trip. You kind of see them come in one at a time, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. So you get to kind of know them individually and how they are together. And 
that was a good moment for me too, because I could say like, oh, Clark Peters and Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Otis and Melvin, I recognize them from the wire right away. We have Norm Lewis and then Delroy Lindo, who of course has been in quite a few Spike movies. When mm-hmm. he comes in, you can kind of start to recognize them, but then right away you get to see what their relationship is like with each other in a very, like you said, light and fun way. If a movie about Vietnam is reminding you of Girls Trip, <laughs> Spike is really just doing the most here. He's doing all the right things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all the right things. So speaking of that, I think we can transition now. Spoilers over. <laughs> we'll talk about some of Spike's other movies that honestly are probably some of his biggest. We you know don't want to go on forever. But his most well-known film, Do the Right Thing, from 1989, his most acclaimed and probably what he's still known for the most. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think that this is definitely Spike's best movie. I wrote down in our notes, is this a perfect movie? I think that we can have that conversation. I say yes. So the first time I watched it was in college, actually. At the time, I thought it was very prescient then. And watching it with everything that is going on right now just made it that much more powerful. Simply Do the Right Thing is about racial tensions that happen all in one day, a very, very hot summer day and one block in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. While I say that also, I think Spike Lee is a really great director of the One Day movie. He's done this quite a few times now. And this, I think, is definitely his best showcase of that style as well. What do you think of Do the Right Thing? Interesting. No, I loved it. I saw this a long time ago, and I just don't think I understood what he was doing. And that was, you know, that's privilege and naivete. But watched this yesterday again, and I absolutely loved it. I think it's perfect as well. I think his criticism and what he says at the end is just spot on. It's exactly what we've seen with everything that's happened from George Floyd's murder, going into the protests, seeing some riots, looting. It was like shot for shot what has happened in real life. And that is so chilling in a way too, but it's also very telling that Spike has been telling these stories for 20 plus years and it's still so relevant. And the fact that he uses a pizza shop, of all things, as a metaphor for all these racial tensions and injustice is just mind-blowing. So if you haven't seen Do the Right Thing, you need to watch it. Rent it on iTunes if you can, or on Prime. If you have seen it, I'm going to talk about the ending briefly. So if you haven't seen it and don't want it spoiled, skip about 30 seconds. One thing that I thought was wild after rewatching was the film criticism back then. On the special feature, Spike's Last Word on the Criterion DVD, Spike has said that he has only ever been asked by white viewers whether or not Mookie did the right thing. Black viewers do not ask the question, and Lee believes that Mookie was angry about the death of Radio Rakim, and the viewers that question that justification are implicitly failing to see the difference between property and the life of a black man. Oh my god, that is exactly what we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. And how certain people, mostly older white people or conservative, are seeing all these riots and looting and confusing them with the protests, but also making the argument that, oh my God, this looting is so bad when you're totally missing that it's about the murder of a black person. And like I said, that was just spot on and exactly the point that Spike is making. In the end, they they talk about how he's getting the insurance money back anyway. It doesn't matter about that. He can rebuild it, even though 
you know, Sal said he built this with his own hands, but yeah, somebody's murdered now because of the injustice and they don't compute. That was, that was, it's so powerful. And then even more at the very end, I noticed, I don't know if it's a character or what, but they say register to vote. And it's like, it's come full circle. And this was like 1989. And And the fact that it doesn't end there, right? The film, it has a coda, right? It doesn't end with the death. It ends with these two Mm -hmm. quotes, one from Martin Luther King Jr. and one from Malcolm X. And some critics saw these as just, oh, well, you can't be both it's one or the other and it's like no that's that's not what spike is saying it is just completely philosophical and a per- again a perfect movie watch it watch it again spike has one of his frequent collaborators on here barry alexander brown who's his editor who actually got his first oscar nomination working with spike um not until black Klansmen. so he's been working with him for a really long time um is also on defy wow. bloods and just some oscar stuff i think one of the great Oscar travesties, of course, is that this film wasn't nominated for Best Picture, and it was the year when Driving Miss Daisy won, which is just like another another little dig. Not only picture, but also adapted screenplay. Oof. And Do the Right Thing was in the original screenplay category, so they weren't really competing against each other, but the fact that Driving Miss Daisy won both categories is not great. I think maybe, yeah, a bigger crime is actually that this movie didn't get the original screenplay Oscar. I think that this screenplay is sharp as attack. It lost to Dead Poets Society that year. Which, like, I like Dead Poets Society, but it's not do the right thing, you know? It's that kind of, like, sappy, saccharine screenplay that Academy voters adore. Which I get it. I saw that and I was like, mm-hmm. okay, like, okay, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it only ended up having two nominations, Best Original Screenplay and then Best Supporting Actor for Danny Aiello, who plays Sal. I mentioned that a little bit earlier about the Academy recognizing the white actors in Spike's films. A fun fact about this movie, actually, was that Robert De Niro was going to play Sal. (laughs) Spike Lee wanted that. I think it's a totally different movie. I'm not really sure how it would work given the audience's existing relationships with Robert De Niro, but I think Danny Aiello does a great job, but... De Niro had scheduling conflicts, so it's history. Wasn't meant to be. So the next Spike Lee movie we have is Malcolm X, which was made in 1992. It's a biopic about Malcolm X. Uh, Spike uses the autobiography as as the source material for the movie. It's a very long movie. It's like three hours and 20 minutes, but it goes through different phases of Malcolm Little's life, who becomes Malcolm X, and kind of seeing his transition from being somewhat of a delinquent to being in prison and motivated to becoming this big figure of Black Islam. There are a lot of good performances. Denzel kills it in this role. Even though he's young and some of the mannerisms he's acquired as he's gotten older aren't here, like in Fences. It's just, that's like a very loud picture. But I still like what he does. He... He's very controlled and obviously has a tumultuous life as Malcolm X. So it is actually worth the watch. It's a long one, but I also love the book when I was younger. I love this one. It's on Netflix. It is long, but I think it's definitely worth the watch. And it does move pretty quickly. Watch this for the Denzel performance. It is really, really excellent. And also... 
Spike Lee plays with different genres. Now he's given us a war movie. This is his take on the biopic. And I think this is kind of the best you can do with a biopic. We've talked on episodes before about how I don't really love this genre always, but I think this one, this one really works. And I love how Spike hasn't been in his movies lately, but he was in a lot of them a while ago. So Spike plays his friend in the beginning of the movie. He's in it a little bit later on, but he's mostly in the beginning. He's his, He works in the barber shop that he goes to and they wear these very bright, zoot suits together and they're like strutting throughout the city and it's actually really fun to watch them together and especially spike yeah i love when spike puts himself in his movies of course he's mookie (laughs) and do the right thing but in malcolm x too and in others i think it's it's fun to see him in that way i've always thought of it and i don't think it's necessarily this but i just like thinking of it this way you know how hitchcock would just put himself in his films Mm -hmm. to make you kind of follow them yeah. yeah i think that this is Spike Lee's fun way of doing that. Now that I think about it, it's funny. He plays a pizza guy in Red Hook Summer. And it might, I think it is the same uniform too. So it's kind of funny that, yeah. Yeah. Thinking about Oscar stuff, because we are the way that we are. And I do this thing in my head always when I'm thinking back to Oscar history and thinking about what are some Oscar swaps that I can do? So when I see that Denzel lost this Oscar, I think, okay, how could I change it so that he could win this Oscar and the person who won could win another Oscar? And this one, I think, is the easiest one maybe in the history of the Oscars to do. So Denzel lost his Oscar for Malcolm X to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman and Scent of a Woman was Al Pacino's It's Time to Give Him an Oscar, Oscar. And what I would do here instead, I think we should give Al Pacino Best Actor for Godfather Part 2, not Mm -hmm. Art Carney, which no one remembers that performance anyway. Sorry, Art Carney. (laughs) And give Denzel an Oscar for Malcolm X. He can keep Training Day and Glory. He can keep those Oscars. And he can have three. (laughs) He can be in the club with Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson and Daniel Day-Lewis. I think... He belongs. I'm fine not spreading the wealth when it comes to Denzel. That solves the problem, I think. <laughs> Just give Pacino is deserved for Godfather Part 2, and then Denzel can win for Malcolm X. Yeah, I, I like that a lot more because I think his performance in Training Day is good, but it's a little problematic. So, But we'll talk about Training Day when we get to <laughs> our early 2000s. <laughs> we sure will. We sure will. And then other Oscar stuff. So it had two nominations. One, of course, Best Actor for Denzel Washington. And then Best Costume Design for Ruth Carter, which you mentioned at the top of the episode that she was just inducted. Yeah, into the Board of Governors last year. Yeah. And then Roger Ebert had listed this as his number one movie of the year for 1992. And then it was also in Scorsese's top 10 of the year. Nice seals of approval right there. So again, stream this one on Netflix. It also has... Some of Spike's frequent collaborators, Terrence Blanchard doing the score, Barry Alexander Brown editing, and Ernest Dickerson doing cinematography. So our next one that we have that I put on here is one of my favorite Spike Lee movies. I don't know if this is like a controversial one to be a favorite, but it's from 2006, Inside Man. Do you like this one? Have you seen it? I rewatched it. I love it. I think it's Spike's most tame, most mainstream picture. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. It's fun. Inside Man is a really slick 
crime thriller that I think is Spike Lee's take on Sidney Lumet's classic all-in-one-day movie, Dog Day Afternoon. Love that one. I love that one too. I think if you've seen that one, this is definitely, I recommend that. And then I think if you haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon, watch Inside Man and then watch Dog Day Afternoon. Talking about Pacino again there. But I think it's just a really fun film with a great cast. We have Clive Owen. We have Denzel Washington. We have Jodie Foster. We have Christopher Plummer. It's just really fun. And it also, again, features Terrence Blanchard doing the score. This score sounds a lot like the Black Klansman score, actually. I thought it was really similar. It also has Barry Alexander Brown back editing. And it actually also has Matthew Libatique doing cinematography, who you might know from A Star is Born or a lot of Darren Aronofsky's films, including Black Swan. So it's really beautifully shot. No nominations, of course, for Oscars. It is very mainstream and just a fun one. It, it's like a twist on the heist film, which I love. It kind of takes it further. It does incorporate a lot of things, but I think he does a really good job of fleshing them out and not going too far. I think Jodie Foster here is really good. She's really strong. She's this badass woman who comes in and she's going to control the heist. She's going to go in there on her own. Yeah, Jodie Foster was my favorite performance here. I think she kills it. When I saw that she was in it, I was really excited. And then I think I actually saw this. I saw Inside Man at the Dollar Theater when I was like in middle school, which is probably like too young to watch this. But so I definitely benefited from watching it again as an adult. And her performance really blew me away this time. I mean, everyone's good. I, I like that you're kind of rooting for the robbers too, but Denzel is good as the detective. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of rooting for him, kind of rooting for Clive. So you can stream Inside Man on Netflix. It's a great Netflix movie to watch. Just throw on one night. So our last one that we're going to talk about in depth here is 2018's Black Klansman. I put this on the list not because I think it's... It's not one of my favorite Spike Lee movies, actually. I like it. I put it on here because this was when Spike Lee really got recognized by the Academy. It took until 2018. Mm -hmm. So if you're not familiar with Black Klansman, it is an historical drama period film that's set in the 70s from IMDb here. It follows the life of Ron Stallworth, played by John David Washington, And he is the first African-American detective to serve in the Colorado Springs Police Department. And he sets out on this dangerous mission to infiltrate and expose the KKK. It is a, I think, a great premise for a film. And I think it is really interesting. But again, the most important thing I think to discuss here is just why it got such high praise from critics and from awards voting bodies. What do you think about that? I guess I'm, yeah, I'm surprised that it happened with this one. I mean, I'm also not surprised because it is like a crowd pleaser. They're fighting the KKK. I think that's, again, coming back to the present day. We've been dealing with a lot of this lately, white supremacy and the KKK specifically. So it's so timely, which again, Spike does time and time again. So I'm kind of interested to see what his next picture is going to be. It's funny in Black Klansman. He mentions Vietnam very briefly, or it's mentioned by one of the characters, and that's that was his next movie. So I'm curious if he like gave any Easter eggs in Defy Bloods, too. Hmm. Oh, yeah, no, I'm wondering <laughs> if he did. I think that this, yeah, the timing of this was really key. It was released right after the 
white supremacist rally in Charlottesville that was just devastating. And he, again, has this very deep critical eye when looking at history and when he's choosing how he wants to depict that and showing the similarities between the past and where we are right now in the present. And I think this one is just a gut punch. And I think that's why it did really well, too. I think that's part of it. So this one, it got six Oscar nominations, the most of any of Spike Lee's films. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director. That was his first Best Director nomination, which, again, completely wild. Best Supporting Actor for My King, Adam Driver. (laughs) Best Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And with Best Adapted Screenplay, Lee won his first competitive oscar ever yeah that's crazy i mean this this was his 22nd movie and that was his first win that's just i mean seems like a typical oscars thing in a way which is kind of sad but i think even more even more noteworthy was his purple suit which i think he'll always be Mm -hmm. recognized for (laughs) i loved that (laughs) i love his clothes at the like his purple suit my favorite spike lee moment actually from all of award season i just thought of this because I read this interview with him where he was talking about how he when he he flew to Vietnam to film to Five Bloods right after the Oscars. So he didn't really have a lot of time to do the press and oh, wow. do all the parties and everything. And he talks about how his wife was really happy that that happened because he couldn't trash Green Book. Because <laughs> <laughs> he would have just spent all his time doing that in the press. And he's like, it's a good thing I was gone. But my favorite thing that he did during that award season was actually at the BAFTAs. He, in the um, video, right? Yes, not quoting this directly, <laughs> but loosely, some British journalist ask, asks him what he thinks of Green Book, and he says, it wasn't my cup of tea, and then he just walks away. Honestly, I think about that all the time. I see that a lot on Twitter, too. So. <laughs> it's so good. So you can stream Black Klansman on HBO Max. That was just a really short list of some that we've watched recently and that we think are kind of noteworthy or fun ones to watch. There are tons of others you can watch. Spike Lee has made great documentaries, um, When the Levees Broke, Four Little Girls, Mm -hmm. also other narrative feature films that he's made, Crooklyn, Clockers, She's Gotta Have It, 25th Hour. There are tons of Spike Lee movies. And he's made a few shorts recently too i mean he's done a lot over the years but just recently one related to george floyd and then i think another to covid so it's interesting how he's like always making stuff and it's it's all varied documentary narrative short whatever he's just he wants to make it everything which is cool and i'm glad we have this one to kick off award season so early i know we're actually starting i feel like (laughs) i'm excited i can't wait can't wait I mean, last year at this time, well, July, like a month later, Brad Pitt, we'd already seen his performance and he went on to win. So maybe I mean, Delroy yeah. can do it. And the year before we had, we had Get mm-hmm. Out. So yeah. Oh, so exciting. Can't wait. Hopefully. So I'm sure we'll be back updating you very soon about all the Academy changes that are happening. And on our next episode, we'll be talking about some other new releases that have been coming out on VOD or streaming platforms that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet with you guys. I guess one that I think we both want to see is The King of Staten Island. So we'll definitely be reviewing that one and a few others that have come out on VOD as well. So we'll see you guys back here soon. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. We're glad we got to talk all about Spike Lee with you and... 
looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time.